Hey, everybody, how you doing? Ooh, that's loud. Um, man, isn't the weather amazing? Oh, my gosh. Oh, jeez. Sorry, I just, had to, I just had to say that. My name's Eric. Welcome to E3. I'm uh, the pastor of musical worship. Uh, I don't know. I pointed over there. I don't know. I guess that's where I live. But today I'm, I'm teaching, and I'm really happy to be doing so. As Dan said a while ago, we're in the middle of this, serve, uh, this series called Immersion which is based on a book that Pastor Mark wrote. And um, he's taking a really short weekend away from, uh, from us to be with his family, which is a good thing. And he and I kind of talked and we were like, well, what are we going to do? You know, should, should I try to teach your book or should we do something different? And we kind of just decided that what we would continue with the series and um, I would just try to kind of unpack his thoughts and kind of mix them in, uh, with my thoughts and it would be kind of a Mark and Eric blender. So uh, what you're getting is a, a McNeese case smoothie, if you will. Um, so we're going to talk about this, uh, this thing about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, loving others as yourself. And tonight we're talking specifically about loving God with all your soul and what that means. And um, if you guys have been with us for this series, you know that we started it on Easter Sunday. We passed out a ton of books and kicked off the series. And as I was thinking about today, earlier this week, you know, I got to thinking about how appropriate that feels to me. Because what we are talking about when we're talking about living a life that God envisioned for us, and we're talking about loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving others, is we're really talking about something that I would just call a resurrection life. So we started it on Easter where we, where we remember the resurrection of, of Jesus. And, and I found this out a few years ago that Easter is actually, in most traditional churches, Easter is a season. It's not a day. Like I grew up kind of just thinking that Easter was Sunday, and then we blew past Easter into whatever was next. Easter is actually a season of the church, that the church remembers the time when Jesus was on the earth after his resurrection, before his final ascension. And um, so it's really cool that we're going through this life now because I think there's something about the resurrection and about the re living a resurrection life that is incredibly significant. A lot of things happened when the grave ended up to be empty. You know, we were forgiven. We were declared free of sin. We were buried with Jesus and then rose sort of innocent and free from sin if we're a follower of him. He broke the power of evil. He broke the power of death. And in doing so, he inaugurated an entirely new way of being in the world. That all of a sudden there is new potential for us. That God has said there is a new way to live and it has to do with overcoming evil, overcoming death. And so uh, I, I think it's so cool that we're going through this right now. And I just want to unpack this idea of what a resurrection life is, what a resurrection life isn't. Because I think a lot of times what we think a resurrection life is is really a resuscitation life. Now when something is resuscitated, it is dead and it comes back to life. Which is not a bad thing, don't get me wrong. If you're dead, resuscitation is good. But something more happened in Easter than just resuscitation. Because Jesus didn't just come back the way he was. There, there are words that, that the Bible uses to describe 
Jesus' encounters with people. And, and they're words like, you know, terrifying, confusing. I got paraphrase would be freaky. I'm freaked out. Not just because this guy was dead and now back to life, but there's something more. Because we're also told that some of his followers, his closest friends, would spend hours with him after his resurrection and not recognize him. They'd be walking down a road for hours and not know it was Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus would do something. In some case, cases, he, he served communion. And as he broke the bread, everyone's like, bam, that's Jesus right there. And so what that tells us is that a resurrection life, Jesus' life after the resurrection, is somehow the same because once they see it's Jesus, they're like, hey, it's Jesus. I, I don't believe, I, I can't believe I missed him. So they know it's him. They recognize it's him. But it's also fundamentally different, transformed, utterly unlike it was before because they spend hours with him and they don't recognize him. And I think there's two thoughts uh, for us here. The first thought is that the book of Ephesians tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and is working in us. And so when we talk about a life uh, that is an immersion life, a life that is purposed towards God, that is pointed towards him, we're talking about trying to live into this idea that that power is inside of us, but most of us just don't feel it. We don't have access to it. And the second thing that is really, really uh, cool news and, and good news, very good news, amazing news to us, except it just flew right out of my brain. Maybe it's over here somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll catch it in a second. Um, it's not just about resuscitation. This is the good news. Because there's areas of my life, to tell you the truth, I don't want them to be resuscitated. Because there's areas of my life that I don't want them to stay the same. And I think it's probably true like that for some of you. That you would say, there's an area of my life. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's my self-esteem. And to tell you the truth, I don't want that to be resuscitated because I need it to be transformed. And the message that the resurrection gives us is that there are parts of your life that can be utterly transformed into something that you may not even recognize, but that is eternal, that is joyful, that is full of love, and that is God-given and God-ordained. And that is good news, is it not? Okay, so that's what we're talking about. I want to tell you a couple stories about, uh, about little Eric, about me as a kid. I had a really crazy imagination, as most kids do. Um, but w my family was a family of golfers. Uh, my grandfather was, not gophers, golfers. Um, <laughs> my grandfather was one. My, my mother and my father were. Um, my grandmother as well. And, and I was for a while. And so we would go out every, occasionally on Sunday, take the whole family. And um, we, were, we were walking the golf course one day, and I was, like, separated from my family. They were kind of maybe, like, down the fairway, and I was just kind of walking along. And I don't know quite how it happened. I don't remember exactly how about it, but I managed to hit myself in the face with the golf club. <laughs> if I, I aspired to be athletic, I promise it just never worked out. So I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I whacked myself right in the nose with the golf club. 
And it didn't break my nose or anything, but it did bring blood to, to it. So I'm walking down the golf course. I'm like, I'm like you know, seven-ish, you know. So I'm walking down the golf course. Blood's coming out of my nose. I'm trying to catch up to my parents. I'm kind of starting to freak out because, you know, I'm a little, little guy. And uh, I, I didn't think it could get any worse until this happened. Uh, what happened was blood got into my mouth, okay, which as an adult is not a big deal. But as a child with a vivid imagination, I became convinced that I was now cursed to be a vampire <laughs> because I had tasted blood. So like now I'm bleeding and I'm also freaking out because I'm going to turn into a vampire tonight and, and bite my family in the neck and everything. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a vampire. It's going to be horrible. That story has nothing to do with anything else we're talking about tonight, except that it leads to this story, which also involves my imagination. Um, I was like by no means a, a daring child, um, but I was normal, and, and it might shock you guys also to know that I actually grew up in the country. Um, I really did. And so at the end of our road, we didn't have a street, we lived on a road, uh, down the road was a neighbor and, you know, they had trees and all over their yard, and, and I used to love to climb trees. Um, so I was down at my neighbor's house, climbing a tree, and as sometimes happens, I slipped. I slipped and fell out of the tree. And it wasn't, like, really, really tall or high off the ground, but it was high enough that I, like, I fell and I landed smack, a smack on my back. And I didn't know, again, as a, as a child, I didn't know that, you know, the muscles in your, in your chest and your diaphragm will kind of, if they, if they get impacted, they spasm, and then you can't breathe. All I knew is I hit the ground. I couldn't breathe. <gasps> So in my mind, in my imagination, like another crisis uh, in, in, my, in my childhood, I was convinced I was having a heart attack. <laughs> Again, like, I, I didn't know at the time that it's really difficult for eight-year-old boys to have heart attacks. All I knew is, like, I, I, I didn't know what a heart attack felt like, but I figured it must have something to do with not being able to breathe. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't breathe. I'm having a heart attack, freaking out. I tell you that story for this reason. It's really easy to take air for granted until you can't get any, isn't it? Like it's really easy to just walk around in life breathing until something happens. Maybe uh, you can also get too much air. You can hyperventilate. But it's easy to take air for granted until something happens and you either get too much of it and you hyperventilate or you don't get enough of it and you can't breathe. And in Mark's book, he talks about, uh, you know, what it takes to live a life that is pointed towards God requires a lot of different things. You know, kicking with your legs, it's a swimming metaphor, right? You know, and pulling with our arms. And, 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 and one of the things in there is breathing. And it doesn't require a, a PhD in, in physiology to know that you are not going to get very far if you stop breathing. Right? And the, and the symbolism here is really, really natural between our relationship with God and our breath. That, that from the beginning of God's people, from the beginning of his story, there has been a connection between breathing and God. It starts in, in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, there's this uh, incredibly intimate story, really, God has just created all of the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 7, this is written. That the Lord God formed the man 
from the dust of the ground. And he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. The crazy thing about that story is that, you know, that, that we call that guy Adam. Um, you know that the, from the moment that Adam got that first breath, guess what? He needed another one. And then he needed another one after that. And then he needed another one after that. Air is not something that you just get one time. And you're like, good, done, I'm good, good for the rest of my life, see you, see you on the other side, God. When you start breathing, you need breath constantly. We need that relationship with God to be a part of our lives. It doesn't stop. It never, ever stops. And the good news is that God loves that. That God is in the breathing business. That he created us. He sustains us. He wants to do that. He loves it. He enjoys it. It makes his day. He makes Facebook posts about it, I'm sure. But you know, we don't do so well on the receiving end. And so loving God with all of your soul, in a sense, really just means responding to this breathing. And what I want to do is spend just a few minutes talking about two barriers that we have to experiencing this breathing. Two things that we kind of struggle with that I feel like get in the way of the breath that God wants to breathe into us. All right? So the first barrier is something that Mark uh, calls the guilt instinct. And I think it's a great phrase. Because I think there's something inside of us that responds in such a funny way when we get a free gift. I think when we think about the idea that God loves us freely and completely and breathes life into us moment by moment. We go, I don't think so. Maybe, but you don't really know me, God. So I tell you what, rather than me just receiving this, let me figure out a way that I can maybe repay this. Maybe I figure out a way not to make this such a, a free gift. Because there's this thing inside of us that goes, I'm too guilty for this. I'm not good enough to receive this gift. And God wants sort of nothing to do, that, do with that, but I think it's so natural. You know, like my wife and I, we try to one-up each other with presents all the time. And there's something that's kind of cute and funny about that, and I love to give gifts. I'm, I'm that guy, you know? Like, I love to give gifts to people. I, I have to know you, so don't just come up and ask me for a gift later. But, but there's also something that's not healthy about it. Because, see, as long as I can give a gift back to you that's as equal to what you gave me, we're on the same level, right? Like Dan gives me an iPad, and maybe I give Dan an iPad. <laughs> but, say, but say Dan gives me an iPad, and I, I can't give anything back. There's something about our relationship that's changed, and I have to acknowledge, I can't repay this debt. I can't repay this gift, Dan. And I think that's where a lot of us live because we think about this gift that God gives us and we're like I can't repay this I want to try though God I want to try I'm going to work really hard but the reality is that we will never repay that gift that God's given us and that's very very uncomfortable for a lot of us I think uh, I, I was reminded of this story 
that I heard about six to eight months ago. And it involved a guy from the United States who became friends with a guy, I believe it was from Ethiopia. And they became friends over here doing some uh, ministry stuff, some conference stuff. And they had an opportunity to go to Ethiopia to visit this guy's home. So the guy from the United States went over there. They spent some time together doing some missions work. And at, what, at one point, they were going to host a party at this guy's house, at the, at the guy from Ethiopia's house. They were going to have a party, have a feast. So they invited the guy from the United States. And then uh, there was a, a third guy also from the United States who, who kind of came as well and was part of the, part of the group. And as they, as they began to eat the meal, the third guy pulled the other guy from the United States aside and said, hey, just so you know, this meal that you're about to eat cost this family one month's wages to put on. I want you to just think about that. How much money do you make in a month? It, it may be a lot, it may be a little, but you throw a dinner party that costs a month's worth of your paycheck? That's some dinner party. Well, um, these family, this family was not well off. So the guy, the first guy from the United States, he did what most of us would do, right, in that situation. He reaches for his wallet, right? Because he's like, let me, let me pay for this. Let me, let me offset some of this cost for this family. And the other guy from the United States, like, pulled him aside and just reprimanded him and said, don't you dare. You will dishonor the sacrifice. And then he used this phrase that just resonated with me ever since he said, you must suffer the kindness of this gift. And I don't think there's, it's something just flipped on in my head about that sometimes when somebody gives you a gift that is so amazing, that there's a, there's a sort of suffering involved in it because you can't do anything to repay you back. You just have to stand there and go like, I didn't, I didn't deserve this. I feel uh, unworthy of it. And the only thing I can do is say, Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so the first barrier that we have to deal with is this idea of suffering the kindness of God. That the very idea that he breathes breath into us and wants to sustain us moment by moment is something we just have to deal with and accept, even though it makes us feel uncomfortable. We can't pay it back. There's a story in the Bible about a guy named Saul um, in the New Testament. And I think his story is an amazing insight in what it means to suffer the kindness of God. So I just want to read a couple passages of Scripture. Uh, Saul was a religious leader. He was a Jewish leader right around the time Jesus was crucified. And so as people started kind of popping up and saying, hey, remember that Jesus, that, remember that criminal? Guess what? You know what? He was the Messiah. Like a lot of the, the religious leaders were like, oh, really? Hmm. And as more people and more people started to do it, they got angrier and angrier and angrier, not irrationally angry. To their eyes, these people were being traitors to their people. Traitors spiritually, traitors politically, traitors ethnically. So they began to persecute them. And the first, one of the very first leaders of the, of the Christian church was a guy named Stephen. Stephen was put on trial for blasphemy and executed 
by the religious leaders. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story right here in chapter 8. The scriptures say that Saul was one of the witnesses to the execution. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Then a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. I've heard a scholar basically say, you know what you need to think of Saul as? Think of Saul as a terrorist. Saul is a religiously motivated fanatic that is throwing men and women into jail, handing them over, in some cases, to be executed for their religious beliefs. That's Saul's life. But God doesn't leave him there. Because a short time after that, Saul's on his way to a town called Damascus to throw some more people in jail. And he has an encounter with Jesus. And it goes something like this. These are Saul's words. Saul is telling the story that Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, why are you doing this? Then he says this in Acts 26. Who are you? And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. Does he say to Saul, get up off your feet or get up on your feet and go pay for all the bad things you've done? Get on your feet, Saul, and, and, and really beat yourself up emotionally for the, for the damaging things you've done to my church. No. He says, get on your feet. you got a job to do. Get on your feet, Saul. I am giving this to you. This is my kindness. Now let's go get to work. And later on, uh, Saul's name gets changed to Paul. And he writes this in a letter kind of describing what, what he, uh, his thankfulness and what it means to suffer the kindness of God for him. He writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, he writes, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Do you think that Saul learned to suffer the kindness of God? I think he absolutely learned. He couldn't repay this. He had to sit with the knowledge that he had blood on his hands, and that God appointed him to bring the message of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. There's another barrier to kind of just receiving that breath. And it looks something like this. It, it, it really looks like these instruments over here, these guitars that, that we use that I've been around for 35 plus years. Because some of us 
We want to experience God. Some of us may be just walking with God for the first time, and we're like, okay, God, show me what it feels like to follow you. God, I want to see you. I'm looking. I'm not seeing anything. Following God a lot of times is like learning to play an instrument. And Mark kind of unpacks this in the book, but, but when I first started playing guitar, you know, I had no idea how to tune the instrument. No idea. Trust me, my parents will tell you. I had no idea. I've got two kids playing violin. They don't know either. <laughs> you pick it up. You don't know what it's supposed to sound like. You play it. It might sound wrong, but you don't know what to do about it. You don't know what a well-tuned guitar is supposed to sound like. And some of us, at the beginnings of our walk with God, have to acknowledge that fact. We don't know what God looks like in the world. We don't know what the things that he does look like or feel like or sound like because we haven't tuned ourselves to his frequency. So you know how I learned to tune these things? I learned from people who had done it before and who said, this is how you tune a guitar. Trust me, it was not fun. It was, put your finger on this fret. Play this string. Okay. Does it sound like this string? No. Make it sound like that string. Okay. There was nothing mystical in it. There was no, there was no you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan there. There was no edge there. It was like, put your finger, put your finger on the fret. Play it. Oh, man, but I want to do this. I want to I know. No, you can't start there. You have to do this. Now, after years and years and years of tuning guitars and tuning guitars, I can pick up a guitar and I can know instantly, is this thing in or out? And, and your lives are like that too. Some of you guys are wondering why you don't see God in your life. And just to be frank and blunt, it's because you haven't tuned your life to what he's trying to do in the world. You tune your life to God and you'll soon be amazed at how much you see. Oh my gosh, that was like, that was really weird. That was a supernatural thing. Oh my gosh, I think God is speaking to me. But to do it, you have to do things that don't, they're not really like, woo, mystical things. They're just like, put your finger on the fret type of things. There's five things. Mark unpacks them in the book and I'm just going to blow through them real quick. The first thing is you have to read scripture. Like, you know, I, I kind of have this reputation of being somewhat laid back and everything, but I also got to tell you, like, there, I'm coming more and more to just realize that there are just absolutes you can't get by. You can't call yourself, you can't have your life tuned to God and not sit under the authority of this book. Ever since God decided to write down the Ten Commandments instead of just whispering into Moses' ear and play like a game of telephone for 3,000, 4,000 years, we have, be, we have been a people under the authority of a written word. And this is it. Um, I'm in school right now, and, and I love this phrase that we are a people of the book. We always have been. We always will be. So what do you do with it? Because this thing is a bit intimidating, is it not? Anybody? 800 pages, mine is, I don't know. 66 books, poetry, history, Ezekiel, hello. Letters, what do you do with it? Well, just as kind of a, uh, kind of put rubber, uh, you know, rubber to the road, so to speak, 
um, a, a scholar or a guy once told me in a class I was in, you read the Bible one question at a time, one book at a time. So in other words, to put it in extremes, you don't ask a thousand questions of one book of the Bible. It's overwhelming. You don't ask one question of the entire book of the Bible. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that it's overwhelming. And some of us just need to start. So you come up with a question. What do you want to know about God? What do you want to know about Jesus? What do you want to know about his people? And you pick one book of the Bible and you just start. And, uh, you know, Dan, uh, Dan Meyer, Dan Durenberger, me, Trace, Mark, any of us would be happy to say, oh, I'll tell you where to start. Like, I can give you some suggestions. One book, one book of the Bible, one question at a time. The, another way to tune your life to, to uh, kind of just feel God breathe into you is through a life of prayer. And we unpack this more in the Red Letters series. Um, but really just keep in mind that prayer is not just when you kind of get a chance to give your grocery list to God. That, that prayer kind of first and foremost is fellowshipping with the creator of the universe. Speaking to him and then shutting up so that he can speak back. Is it easy? No. Is it necessary? Yes. And in that we're also, we are absolutely called to petition God, to say, God, I am in great need. Because God loves to be the sustainer and the, and the, and the giver of things. But it's not just about that. Another way to tune your life to God is to worship, musical worship. We do this every Sunday. Some of us, great singers. Some of us love to sing, very comfortable. Others, come on, let's be honest, not so much, right? You know, I've said it, I've, I've said it before, like, you, you just don't, like, get in your cubicle world and be like, guys, let's all sing a song this morning. I'm feeling great. This doesn't work like that. But music does something amazing to the human spirit. Like studies have been done that music has this bonding quality. It, it, something happens in our brains, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our beings. I don't think that's random. I think God wired us that way. He wired us to be people that respond to the arts and in particular music. So we come into a place like this and we may not be singers. But I, I really do say, I, I challenge you, I dare you, I dare you. If you're not a singer, I dare you to come in here and sing one day. And, and as a side, you guys don't know how amazing you sound from up here when you're singing. It's the greatest gift I get is to hear this community sing. And when you sing, you're not just singing any old song. It's not just kind of like, you know, random love songs that we, we, we play up here. We sing songs to remind you of who you are and who God is. This time is to remember those things and at times to reenact them. What was that moment like when you cast your, uh, your brokenness on Jesus, on God, and said, take it? Another way to tune your life uh, to God is to give. And this is not an opportunity for you to pull out your checkbook. It's, this is not what this is about. But we've said it before that money is a bar great barometer of your heart. And it's also a great changer of your heart. So if you want to kind of really jumpstart your life, give something to the work of God in the world. And we talk a lot about kind of, a, if you've been around church people a lot, you might have heard like the tithe, 10%. 
That's a great guideline, but here's the deal. In the New Testament, the guideline for giving is radical generosity. Ooh. You can't, like, do math with radical generosity. You can't be like, well, you know, what minus what equals radical generosity? It's a give till it hurts type of thing sometimes. The church is full of stories, or the book of Acts is full of stories. Hey, there's somebody in need. Guess what? You're not, you're not in need anymore because I'm going to take you to the grocery store. I'm going to buy your groceries. Do I have that much money? No, but you're in need. So I'm just going to take care of it. And that will unlock things in your life that you would never believe. And all of a sudden you'll begin to see, I, can't, I feel like I'm seeing God more. I feel like there's something happening in my life. And the last, the last thing is, is service, you know. And, and what a great time to be talking about it with, with members of the Guatemalan team that have come back from serving people who don't have as many resources maybe as we do. And by the way, uh, I, I know Dan didn't allude to this, but, but I, 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 I have heard, actually, no, I've seen that um, more tattoos came back from Guatemala than went to Guatemala. I'm just going to leave it there. Service, 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 service. Like none of these things are magic bullets. I, there's a story I, I, that, that I, I sort of uh, just really got drawn into as well. Um, there was a woman... Uh, years ago, and she poured her life out for some, in some of the darkest places in this world. And they discovered after she died, her kind of her journal, and, and, and in her journal, she actually wrestled with God a lot. She was like, I don't feel him. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned, but where is God in my life? I wish he would speak more. I doubt my faith. I'm not good enough, blah, 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 on and on and on. And, and the world and the media all pointed their fingers, and they said, ah, look at this, because she was a woman of faith. And they said, look at that. She doubted. She doubted God. And yet, her life was an amazing inspiration and a beacon for, for I would say, I dare say, millions of people. Because you know who that woman was? It was Mother Teresa. And she gave her life and poured her life out in service. And even in the midst of, of doubting whether she was doing anything good for God, you know something? Those orphans did not go unheld in Calcutta. Those dying children were held in their last days by this woman. And her legacy ripples out through this world and I dare say through the next. None of these things are magic bullets, but if you're looking to tune your life to God, these are the places to start. And, and I want to kind of just end and land with this last concept that not only do these things allow us to breathe and feel God's presence, but they also touch on a deep need of the world. There's this quote I read this week. Um, it, it goes like this, that the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And people who know how to breathe in and receive the breath of God are deep, deep people. And these are the people that walk into the hurting places of our lives and go, tell me how to help. These are the people that, that carry the life of God, the love of God into this world. 
And that's what the world needs. Would you guys pray with me? God, it is no easy thing to suffer your kindness. But God, I, I, I know that we have to. We have to sit in this place of just being unworthy to receive this gift. And we can never repay it. So God, I pray that for any, anybody in this room right now that would just be like, I'm not good enough. I can't, I can't deal with this, Lord. That you would just say, shh, child. Do not dishonor this gift that I give by trying to pay for it. Take it and receive it and just say thank you. And God, I pray that maybe even in this moment, in this next couple minutes that we have together in this room, that maybe the first step of tuning a life to you might be taken, whether through singing, whether through prayer. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come and, and lead us and guide us in these minutes. And we thank you for loving us so much that you started breathing into us in Genesis chapter 2 and you haven't stopped since. We just need to look for it and say thank you. Amen. Wow.